welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Lucy Gray. You wish you had her singing voice. <laughs> I do, I really do. Maybe not the rest of her life, but the singing Aww. voice. And our show is located on the ancestral lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase, Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumseh-Sequim territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sequim-Ulu. And I didn't do a territorial acknowledgement today, Joe, because the one I did for our last Hunger Games conversation was like a little bit tortured, admittedly. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do think that this is supposed to still, I mean, we're still in Panem. And so yeah. I think this is still, uh, the capital is still Colorado-ish, I think. Sure. Although Alex troubled that nicely for our last episode. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> territory, not a big deal for Suzanne Collins and I'm leaving it there. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. So folks, this is our second week spending time in Panem. So Yay. we're talking about The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, the film, which is directed by Francis Lawrence. Uh, once again, he directed Catching Fire, both Mockingjays and now this prequel. The film was written by screenwriters Michael Leslie, as well as Michael Arndt, and the latter is one of the co-writers of Catching a Fire, so he is returning to the franchise, admittedly, like, nearly a decade later. Mr. Snow, after everything you've seen out there in the world, what are the Hunger Games for? Are you, are you coming to the tree? The Hunger Games, they're to punish the districts. Those tributes don't have a choice. Your role is to turn these children into spectacles, not survivors. We're live! Smile, it's why we have teeth. Imagine it was your name that they pulled. Strange things didn't happen here. I just want to know that somebody still cared about me. That I was still of value. Welcome to the capital. You look like you shouldn't be here. I shouldn't, but I'm your mentor. A rebel. I am going to get you out of here. You want to protect people. And it's essential to accept what human beings are what it takes to control them. Let's see you use that famous snow charm. So, Brenna, this film has a $100 million budget, and I'm, I'll run through the cast lightning quick, and then we can get into it. Sure. So we have Tom Blythe as Corio Snow, or, you know, future President Snow. We have Rachel Ziegler as Lucy Gray Baird. Josh Andre Rivera as Sejanus Plinth. That's uh, Corio's best friend. Viola Davis in an absolute scene-stealing performance as mm -hmm. Dr. Gall. Peter Dinklage as Dean Highbottom. Jason Schwartzman as the other film MVP as Lucky Flickerman. Hunter Schaefer as the heart and soul of this movie as Tigris Snow. Fionula Flanagan as Grandmama, you know, a society lady of uh, Corio and Tigris. And finally, Bern Gorman as Commander Hoff, the peacekeeper from District 12. 
Yep. <laughs> so, Brenna, you ended up rereading Suzanne Collins's book for this because, listeners, we have already covered the book, which is why this is just a minisode on the film. Um, no, I didn't. No, you did not. Okay, so you've just been lying to me for the last couple of weeks. No, I've been trying for the last couple of weeks to get back oh, into this book, and I really hmm. have. Um, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to be really boring and rehash all the arguments from our last episode. Sure. But I will say that the film and the book, for me personally, both mm -hmm. suffer from the same core problem. Okay. Which is, I don't know who this is for. Right. I don't need to have an empathetic care relationship with a brutal dictator. Like, I just, mm -hmm. I didn't need Corio's origin story. And it's true. I, I got it out of the library and I sat down to reread it because I really didn't like I wanted to go into this fairly and have a like a clear sense of the story and I had not I did not have any memories from our first read through of the book Joe okay yeah I mean it was three years ago it was but it's also like 800 pages anyway I just <laughs> I just couldn't I couldn't get into it I reread basically part one um and then okay. I was kind of like you know what I'm just hurting my own feelings I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> Okay, well, let's see if we can tackle the easiest one, because even though it's obviously going to be more complicated than I'm going to suggest, I think the intended audience for this is anybody who previously enjoyed either a Hunger Games book or a Hunger Games movie, even though we obviously, by setting it 100 years in the past, do not have Jennifer Lawrence's Katniss or any of the other characters we're familiar with. But this is technically a return to the world of Panam. To me, it's very much in the same vein as the Star Wars prequels. So mm. episodes one through three, where it was, ooh, how did Darth Vader become Darth Vader? And mm -hmm. I think that there is an audience for that. It's just very much not really you and I, because we don't need to see a good man turn bad. Like, I think that there can be a time and place for that, but this unfortunately to me feels a little bit more Ooh, we can still be making money off of this or suzanne collins says oh people keep wanting me to write in this world and as a result i'm going to revisit the ip you know it's interesting because the star wars prequels also came out in a really different time right True. like yes. star wars prequels came out around a time of sort of a reinvigorated interest in anti-heroes right like mm -hmm. i'm thinking of sort of the boom that happens in the late 90s around series like the sopranos those kinds of stories mm -hmm. finding out how you know someone becomes darth vader I, I that was a big curiosity at the time we should also note that it's also like many, many years after the last entry. So it's not like, yes. oh, you waited eight years and now you're getting a new story. <laughs> but in 2023, Joe, like mm -hmm. we're living in <laughs> a fascist hellscape. And like right. <laughs> the idea of, I don't know, rehabilitating Cornelius Snow, it's it's not any more attractive to me in 2023 than it was in 2022. And I think in some ways it's for the same kinds of political, social reasons. Mm -hmm. I think too, what I found frustrating about the film and, you know, I guess we, we should still give a plot summary and stuff and I will get into it, but I don't want to be a jerk, Joe, but like, mm -hmm. I didn't find Blythe's portrayal of Snow particularly compelling. No. And I know that you know, part of the reason why I was going back to the book is because there's always more nuance in the character, right? And I was mm -hmm. couldn't really kind of remember how we got to the fall of snow in the book. Mm -hmm. 
But there's all these moments in the film where I think I'm supposed to feel some sense of, like, Snow being torn between two decisions before he makes the bad one. Um, right. But I, I, I didn't get a lot of that from this performance. And I, I think that the film as a whole maybe suffers from that. I don't know if I'm being too hard on it, but, like, that, that, was, that was my experience of watching it. Yeah, I definitely waffled a little bit on him. I thought he was quite successful as an ambitious student in parts one and mm. a little bit in part two. So yeah, uh, folks, your quick logline is that we're catching up with Corio Snow. He is a starving destitute, basically end of high school, starting college student. But not just destitute, Joe. It's important to know he's like, They've they've still been the like premier family and they mm -hmm. have fallen on hard times because yes. of the rebellion. But like yes. he's still performing wealth at school. Yes, very much so. Because to do otherwise would be weakness, and mm -hmm. you can't have that in the capital in these times. So we're at the stage where we are embarking on the tenth annual Hunger Games, folks who know the premise of the original trilogy, those are the 75th that we're starting with. So this is quite a bit earlier. Not everything that we've come to expect about the Hunger Games has come to pass yet. And really part of the story is about how Snow contributes to that by amping up the drama, introducing things like folks can sponsor a tribute. He turns it into a celebrity style thing where you care about the children before they go into the arena so that you know, hypothetically, you invest on whether they live or die, all that kind of stuff. And I think the film is at its best in the first part into the second part, where we're really getting a sense of what life is like for him as he performs mm -hmm. wealth, as you mm -hmm. said, and moves into meeting Lucy Gray, having that like, is he doing this just because he wants to keep her alive so that he can benefit versus is he actually falling in love and having that that moral murky gray zone. And then as soon as we actually get into the Hunger Games portion, I think that this one is more judiciously filmed and presented. Like the violence isn't as extreme as the yes. three other movies. I appreciated that, I have to say. Mm-hmm. And 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 just feel like we're spending less time in the arena and more on the political machinations that are driving it, like with Dean Highbottom, with Dr. Gall, and so on. And I found that the political angle is what we're often complaining we're missing from dystopia. So mm -hmm. I I liked that. I wanted to see how the capital works and and even, you know, the relationship between the capital and the districts, because so often we're seeing only the district side. So I thought that was all good. Yeah, and I don't disagree with you. And I think that as I think about it, as I was listening to you talk, I realized the movie that I actually want mm -hmm. is the movie about high bottom because mm. I'm fascinated by that character. So Dean Highbottom is the guy who like came up with the idea of the Hunger Games, although we find out in a big reveal at the end that actually it was Cornelius's father who came up with the idea. And Well, it was both of them, but then Snow was the one who sort of took the credit for it and ended up like it was meant to be a bit of a joke. Yeah, Highbottom was like Highbottom was like, this is like a horrible thing we could do. Like, let's get mm -hmm. drunk and think about like the worst thing we could do to the rebels. And Snow's like, oh, but actually. <laughs> I've already taken that to the bank and now I'm the most powerful man in the capital. <laughs> but what ends up happening to Highbottom as a result is he has to like facilitate the games year after yes. year. Mm -hmm. And he is tortured by it. Like he's become addicted to morphling as a way of like coping with mm -hmm. the horrors that he enacts and his own sense of like personal cowardice and not standing up to the powers that be and not 
not stopping what's going on. Mm-hmm. So his character, I was fascinated by (laughs) because to me like there's a compelling story like we're stuck in this kind of hellscape that he's created Mm -hmm. he can't get out of it like that's the political story that i was most interested in and there are there are elements of it with coriolanus snow like there's moments where he he sees true humanity in the children who have been sent to the hunger games and he he does have moments of it, but mm-hmm. because we have to get him to villain status by the yes. end of the film, we sort of have to accelerate his evil doing and bad choices. Yeah. And I really wanted to stick in that true moral gray of the world that Highbottom lives in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't hurt that you've got an actor like Peter Dinklage. You know, once again, the film is really pulling on a stacked adult cast. Mm -hmm. So I would argue almost all of these adults, with the exception of Flanagan, who just honestly isn't really in the film all that much. Like Mm -hmm. grandma's there, but she's like, she's a relic of the old times, still thinking about living high and mighty, not realizing how close to... (laughs) you know, destitution they actually are. Yeah, they've added this element of her kind of being quite like well, she's kind of a racist. <laughs> yeah, and she's totally a racist, and she's not really aware of what's going on around them, and she's not really aware mm-hmm. of how precarious their situation is. Yeah. Which is not the case in the book. In the book, she knows exactly what's going on, and she straight up hates the rebels. <laughs> like, she's just, yeah. it's not like, oh, grandma's a little bit. It's like, no, grandma, grandma hates everybody who isn't from our yes. district. A hundred percent. Yeah. So I I think I'm going to try to bridge now the two conversations we've been having. So mm-hmm. the one about Tom Blythe and whether he's successful as this lead character in documenting the sort of rise and then also moral fall of Snow. I think he's good in these opening parts, but then this is a two hour and 40 minute movie and mm-hmm. fully half of the film is dedicated to part three, which is his quote unquote fall, where he is revealed to have you know, more or less compromise the integrity of the games by ensuring that Lucy Gray does not die when Dr. Gull's multicolored snakes kill off all of the the children in the arena. And he gets demoted to trainee peacekeeper and he finagles his way into District 12 so that we can have this love story with Lucy Gray. And this is really where the movie falls apart for me. And I'm Mm -hmm. going to blame the fact that this is exactly what happens in the book. Like, it's actually a reasonably solid adaptation. Oh, it is. And I had huge problems with it in the book, too, because it's basically two books in one. And I'm not as interested in this part, even though I should be, not because of the love affair, couldn't give two craps about it, but because this is really where it's meant to be oh, he has left behind the capital at this point. It is about who this character is, and he has the opportunity to decide, you know, can I live a life outside of the capital away from my quote-unquote people and just be a human being? And he actively chooses, no, I cannot do that. I need to Mm -hmm. do whatever I can to get back into a position of power, which of course is where we all know the story goes because it's the problem with prequels. But I also feel like Blythe is really unequipped to handle this character transition. So even to the point where at the end of the film, when he thinks that Lucy Gray has betrayed him and he's screaming in the woods for her, I found it, to use your term, uh, very unpersuasive. Yeah, I mean, there's moments during that part where he's literally just shooting his gun randomly off into the woods, which Mm -hmm. doesn't make sense for so many reasons. Number one, he's on the run. He 
yeah. should not be making this kind of noise. Number two, I don't even understand why he wants to kill her in that moment. Like, they no. haven't built up to it in a way that makes any sense. It's too rushed, which is wild yeah. because we're at like the two hour, 30 minute <laughs> mark at this point. And he knows he's going back to the Capitol. So it's kind of like, mm-hmm. okay, okay. Like, I know you're mad and everything, but like, shouldn't you just focus on getting back to the Capitol? Like, I don't understand. But I think we're supposed to believe he's so actually in love with her. And that oh. was the part that also doesn't work for me is not only do I not buy him trying to grapple with the decision about what kind of man he wants to be, but their love affair to me, it works better when we don't know whether he's actually playing her or being real. And in these moments, I do think we're meant to believe the love is real. And I don't buy it at that point anymore. Well, there's a couple of problems. Number one, the chemistry between them is not not good. good. And that's a shame because actually I think Rachel Ziegler's performance here is quite compelling. I really enjoy watching her on the screen. I Mm -hmm. think that she plays this sort of like girl who knows more than her years, savvy sort of character really, really well. Mm -hmm. But not only is their chemistry bad, but... (laughs) Snow has really good chemistry with his cousin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> who is another character who I wanted to know more about. Like there's oh, a character 100%. who is living the downfall of the family, but seems to be able to not resort to evil. <laughs> like what what a refreshing character arc. <laughs> okay. So so this is interesting and I'm going to put you into a sort of hot seat for a moment because you've identified two characters who are morally good as the characters are most interested in. Brenna, is it just that this isn't a story for you? No, I mean, there's nothing good about Highbottom's character. He he's a coward and a failure, right? Like he he may wish that the Hunger Games didn't exist, but he, despite all the power he holds in the Academy, makes zero mm-hmm. effort to stop it. He just gets himself right. high all day to escape it. Like, oh, I don't think he's morally good. I think he's morally gray. I okay. think that's what's more interesting because I don't actually think that Blythe plays Snow as persuasively gray. I think he has Snow as a good guy at the beginning, who then ostensibly falls. But the choices that Snow is making aren't the choices of a trapped fallen man, right? Like he does not have to report Sejanus. He doesn't Mm -hmm. have to make that decision. He condemns Sejanus to death because he can, right? Right. And, like, there's all these moments where, you know, he kills someone rather than allowing himself to get into trouble. And Blythe is trying to portray those as morally gray choices. But, mm-hmm. like, none of this is persuasive to me because ultimately he still wants us to like Snow. And I think that might be the failure in the performance as a whole. Like, as much as mm. I don't want to watch the story of how a bad guy gets bad, like, I don't. It's it's true that that is not a story for me in 2023, right. ultimately. Like, I will own that. But I don't think Blythe is brave enough to He never allow... plays it bad. Yeah, he's not brave enough to allow Snow to be unlikable. And so as a result, I think the performance fails. Also, when they shave his head, he looks exactly like Eminem. And once I've said that, you can't unsee it. <laughs> you messaged me that up inside. <laughs> I could not disagree. Yeah. <laughs> I do want to circle back to Schaefer because I legitimately forgot that she had been cast in this film. <laughs> and it just like, you could it's forget it mind. by the end of the movie, though, Joe, because they don't use her enough. 
Well, yes. I mean, it, it's one of those tricky things where ultimately she is a supporting character, right? Like Tigris is never meant to be a huge part of this narrative. I couldn't remember if she was more significant in the book. I think she was in the beginning stages yes. when she was doctoring his clothes to help him keep up appearances and she was being his confidant and that kind of stuff. And she's almost like his strategist for the games. Um, yeah. Yeah. And of course yeah. she gets no credit for that. <laughs> no, he comes up with it all himself in the movie version, right? Um, but I mean, there, there's something to be said for Schaefer as a performer. I low-key think she's the best part of Euphoria. I really like Zendaya, but I don't love Zendaya's arc on that series, just because the show is so ostentatious. And I think that Schaefer is, in many ways, playing the same role. She's kind of the beating heart, the empathy in both of these performances. And I just, I find her so captivating, and she's so gorgeous in this oh my movie. God. Yeah, she really is. So I, I basically, I'm just like, hi, I'm the Hunter Schaefer super fan over here in the corner, just shouting out her talent and how I want to see her <laughs> more things. Obviously not her film, but let's talk about another character because I teased that Viola Davis is amazing in this movie. And obviously, I think she benefits from just being unabashedly bad. Like, yes, she gets to have all of the fun because there is no moral gray around this character at all. Mm -hmm. No, she's, I mean, she's terrible. She's the innovator for the capital, right? Like her right. whole thing is coming up with new ways for small children to be killed. Um, mm -hmm. It's like, that's her thing. Uh, and she absolutely chews the scenery in the most beautiful way possible in this role. Mm -hmm. She just absolutely embodies it. And you're right. She has the freedom to do that because of who the character is. I think, though, it takes a certain amount, particularly in like the context of Hollywood, it takes a certain amount to like, create a truly grotesquely evil character which this character is right even just like the costumes and the makeup and the opulence like the capital has not yet recovered from the war right mm -hmm, so the mm -hmm. fact that she is like dripping in jewels and sparkles and like mm -hmm. luxurious fabrics like everything about her character is distasteful and yes. amazing to watch <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Yes. Uh, shout out to costume designer Trish Somerville. She also worked on Catching Fire. But if she doesn't get some kind of major awards nomination for the so on the nose, it's absolutely perfect apron that Dr. Gall wears, which literally <laughs> looks like medical scrubs, where it's yes. like it's white with just splashes of blood red latex gloves. Like, I gasped at the audacity of this costume because it is so effing good. <laughs> it really it really is. But also, her performance is very compelling because she's willing to let that character be its full self, mm -hmm. which is not good. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Viola Davis is, a, is an amazing actress yes. all the time, every day. So this wasn't a huge surprise. I think it was more... It's so much less serious. And I get yeah. that you can't have a movie that is going to play in that tone unless you are making a John Waters version of The Hunger Games. And <laughs> I would like to see it, but that is not what we're watching. <laughs> but like, these movies have always been so deadly serious because of the things we're talking about. But I really appreciated this performance because it is kind of campy, you know, maniacal, mustache twirling fun. But mm -hmm. then you also have something like Lucky Flickerman, like Jason Schwartzman is having 
the best time. Yeah, he is. And how? Movie. And how much does he look like Caesar Flickerman? Like they've done it this amazing wild. job that I like. I kept having to double take. Um, but yeah, that is another character that is so perfect. In his case, mm-hmm. he's not evil. He's just so self-involved that it doesn't yes. occur to him like that these are children dying. He's he's basically a trumped-up weatherman who is presenting mm-hmm. the Hunger Games and. The thing that you need to know for context is that in this period, the Hunger Games isn't a ratings catcher. In fact, the right. whole point of assigning mentors and, and all of this additional layering is to try to make people care enough to tune in. And mm-hmm. so Lucky Flickerman is not a celebrity. He's the no. weatherman they've roped into hosting this like ratings loser of a show called The Hunger Games, mm-hmm. but he ends up with a surprise success on his hands. And he... Yeah is exactly as absolutely gross self-involved as you would imagine that character to be and it is so much fun to watch his funny Mm -hmm. asides like he gets actual laughs out of the audience which i don't know if we've had in a hunger games before it's been a long time since i've seen a hunger games in theater so i can't really remember but like there are full-on guffaws from this character oh so many so many (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he's he along with Viola Davis, he's the most fun to watch. And again, it's because they're so fully embodying. I think the sort of unspeakable disgust mm-hmm. that this world is built on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's something to be said for having the bigger, more outlandish, jumps off the screen kind of characters. It, there's almost a thanklessness to having to be Tom Blythe or mm. Rachel Ziegler. I think Ziegler comes off well in part because she also gets to sing, which we've seen in West Side Story. Mm-hmm. So actually, I did want to talk to you a little bit about the music. I'm not a great person when it comes to music. Mm-hmm. And I was taken off guard at how it's kind of bluesy soul music because that's not quite how I remembered it from the book. It it was unexpected when we started to go in that direction in the film. So I think it's Appalachian music because that's what District 12 is. I think that's what they're tapping into. So you're right. There is a bluegrass tradition. You know, something that comes across in this film that actually never comes across in the adaptations of The Hunger Games originally is, you know, Katniss talks about how important music is to District 12. Mm -hmm. She talks about this a lot in the book especially actually in Mockingjay when, you know, the wedding is happening and she talks about how everybody turns to District 12 to provide the music and the dancing because that's what they're good at. Mm. There's this notion of like a folk bluegrass tradition that absolutely aligns with a mining economy. It aligns with, you know, any kind Mm -hmm. of, I'm thinking of in Canada, it would align with like the fishing economies in the Maritimes and the way that like- yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the way that like hard, but also potentially fatal work Mm -hmm. um, often aligns with these kinds of low cost entertainments that Mm -hmm. that become like really critical to the to the life of the community. And I will say that one place I think this film excels even above the original films is showing us what District 12 is like Mm -hmm. in a way that for obvious reasons, we never really get to see here. This is District 12 before. 60 years of pain and trauma right which isn't to say that they aren't experiencing pain and trauma but this is this is district 12 60 years before and there is there's this like a lively nightclub scene and Mm -hmm. people swimming in the water and like there's a freedom about the free time as limited as it is that i actually found really refreshing to watch 
Yeah, like one of the things I'm actually interested to do is when this either hits VOD or physical media is actually skipping the first two parts and just watching part Mm. three, which as I said, is almost long enough to be its own standalone film. And just watching that to see how it plays when I'm not kind of feeling like I'm being emotionally yo-yoed between (laughs) the ups and downs of the story. Because honestly, when we start part three to the end of the film... I'm tired because we built to a climax and then we still got more than half the film to go. And this, I think, speaks to, you know, we have said this is a fairly faithful adaptation. I believe that to be true. But there is something that the film fundamentally, whether it's that it misunderstands it or it is that it chooses this other focus. In the book, obviously, the Hunger Games are important. But the arc is about Coriolanus Snow. Like, what happens in the Hunger Games is part of his character development towards that sort of awakening evil. And Mm -hmm. yes, he's falling in love with Lucy Gray. But like, Lucy Gray winning the Hunger Games is not actually that important. It's immaterial. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas (laughs) in the film, it does feel like this whole climax where you're like, oh my God, Mm -hmm. Lucy. And then she wins. And you're like, yes, we have this amazing victor. This is so exciting. There's another hour. (laughs) yeah just that like (laughs) by the time we get to you know ooh, we're shooting people in the back room of the club in district 12 i was just i was tired i was exhausted i was ready for the movie to end and i don't think it's because this part three is bad i think it's because we've already had to sit through parts one and two and the film doesn't know how to negotiate the transition between that faux climax and then where it's actually heading like I almost would have preferred this to have been, as we said in Mockingjay, some kind of miniseries where it was like, Mm -hmm. don't make this a two hour and 40 minute movie, make this a four part streaming series. And that way, then we could have like two episodes dedicated to the Capitol, the Hunger Games, and then two or three episodes dedicated to just, okay, what does the aftermath look like? Well, yeah. And I think that if they weren't going to do that, they really needed to tighten up parts one and parts two. Like, you know, there's this Uh, temptation to kind of weight the film equally among those three parts Mm -hmm. but i think that if you're if this is really the story of coriolanus no and it has Mm -hmm. to be because we never see lucy gray again right like this isn't like oh this is the story of how that famous rebel lucy gray came to be no that's not what this is about and so Mm -hmm. as much as i love those scenes because they're a refreshing break from blythe often honestly (laughs) (laughs) I think that the film itself makes a mistake in thinking that the love story between Snow and Lucy Gray is as important Mm -hmm. as they make it in the film. (sighs) Yeah, I mean... I mean, evergreen critique, obviously. Well, that's just it, right? Like, one day can we get a dystopian that isn't about a doomed romance or a Mm -hmm. love triangle? Because I just don't... I don't think telling that story works with the kind of political messaging that you're also trying to unpack or critique. (laughs) Like, they're antithetical notions (laughs) in some ways. And I'll tell you, Joe, like, when I got to the end of part two, because you had already kind of warned me that you found part three draggy, and I was Mm -hmm. a little bit nervous because, you know... You're not the biggest fan at the best of times. No, I'm not the biggest fan at the best of times. I'm not the best at staying awake at the best Mm, of times. So like, you know, slightly a perfect storm. Um, But when I got to the end of part two, I actually, oh, I'm kind of embarrassed to say this now, but I actually Mm. was like, oh, wow, this is really cool. How like there's this fake love story. Like they don't really love each other, but they're like selling it to the cameras. (laughs) 
Yes. And then, and then in part three, they're like, "Oh no, we really do love each other. We're gonna you're like no. he's gonna run away to District 12. And I'm like, "Wait, what? No, I thought I was just praising you." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have this note in my phone that's like, "Love story subverted?" Question mark. And <laughs> no, no, not love <laughs> no. story subverted. <laughs> no, not so much. <laughs> they just don't have chemistry. Not not the same thing. <laughs> <sighs> it's tough. It's tough. Well, Brenna, I think we're we're probably now starting to go in some circles. So yes. why don't we close this up with some YA bingo? Bingo! Not a good bingo. All right, Joe. I actually think it's probably going to do just fine on YA mm-hmm. bingo. So let's check it out here. I'm going to give abuse for literally everything that's happening everywhere oh, in sure. this world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and dead body. Yeah. Same, same. <laughs> Um, I want to do hollow romance for mm-hmm. the screen adaptation. I can't remember how we felt about it in the book, but it doesn't sell here. No. And we have a definite borrowed time narrative, A, because uh, there's a finite amount of time that the Hunger Games proceeds for, but B, mm-hmm. because the second he leaves the capital, as a viewer of the previous Hunger Games, you know he's got to get back to the capital, so yes. we're on borrowed time there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there's some magnificent stunt casting <laughs> in yes. this film. Absolutely. What do you have? Uh, okay, so it sounds weird to say when we're talking about someone who's about to become a supervillain, but he's very much the chosen one, right? He Only he could have saved Lucy Gray. Only he could have done what he accomplishes. Obviously, it's with the help of folks like Sejanus Plinth. Uh We've not talked about this character at all. I think I also would have enjoyed more... Like if it had have examined their relationship as opposed yes. to the love story. And the book spends a lot of time there in part one. And that was one thing I was really appreciating when I did revisit it is like their relationship is so complicated. Whereas in the film, it's just kind of like we're friends, but I'm kind of embarrassed about him. Right. Their relationship is a lot more complicated. Snow is quite cruel to him often mm-hmm. in, in the book. And that sets up sort of some of the gray in his character. Um, right. So, yeah, I would have liked more of that or even just like – so Janice's perspective is also really interesting. Like, what is it to move away from the district but never feel like you fit in the capital? Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, okay. I have a road trip because we get demoted to District 12 mm-hmm. for Part 3. I have coincidental classes because we basically thought we were done, quote unquote, Capital High School, and then instead the final exam becomes tutoring people in the mm-hmm. Hunger Games. So it's like, what you studied is now exactly what you need in order to survive. <laughs> <laughs> I also have perfect date for the, you know, whether you buy into the romance between Snow and Lucy Gray when they go fishing and we're scene. just by the lake, you know. It doesn't hurt that it looks gorgeous. I want to go on a weekend retreat at that cottage. <laughs> mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, It's a I, that scene is actually house porny for me, even though the house is like a dilapidated cabin, because just mm-hmm. look at how alone you'd be there. Oh my God, it'd be so good. Imagine right? being that alone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I think the only other one that I have is inclusion flip, if only because I cannot remember for the life of me if Dr. Gall is a man or a woman in the book, but I don't think that they are a racialized character. So Viola Davis, I think, gets the flip. Yeah, I agree with you there. We don't have it on the board anymore, Joe, but we gotta say a little bit about the CGI in this film because it's deeply confusing. <laughs> I was waiting for it. <laughs> like, honestly, some of it is great. Some of it yes. is really Dodgy good. Dodgy AF. Yeah. It is wild. 
the the example I gave to you when I was complaining about this previously <laughs> was mm-hmm. the statue, like the statue that is the tie-in between Mockingjay and this one, right? The statue mm-hmm. in the middle of town. It looks like somebody like cut it out of like a paper drawing and glued it to the screen and then filmed around it. It's so bizarrely poor. Mm-hmm. And yet there's other aspects of it that are so seamlessly solid. Mm-hmm. So I don't get what's going on there. And I do, this is just an aside, but I do just generally have a question about the technology in this world. Because mm-hmm. on the one hand, they still watch TV on like giant. Yeah, it's like cathode raid TVs. And when we're distributing water to the tributes in the arena, it's like we can't get the hovercrafts to work normally. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of the comedy surprisingly comes from like our inability to deliver water to children. <laughs> But also, they seem to have high-speed rail. So it's like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) what is happening technology-wise in Pan Am? I feel like nobody cares, but I just think it's a problem. (laughs) You know what? They're making great advances in certain areas, and others not so much. (laughs) I mean, I'll be honest. If if the world would actually, like, develop fewer new televisions and more high-speed rail, I think we would all be better off. Mm -hmm. But it still still feels janky. There we go. Yeah, (laughs) I I can agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) but uh all that to say no lying wow wow what good are (laughs) you okay well brenna guess what you have survived unless this movie makes a boatload of cash this might be the end of the hunger games for the immediate future joe i can we not do any (laughs) Hunger Games, even if more comes out, please. Uh, sure. I mean, it just means that I'm going to force you to talk about a Twilight movie next year instead. Oh, cripes, Kate. All right. What have, what, what, what have I done to deserve all this? <laughs> People like the venti episodes. I know. But uh, I don't think we're going to be venting next week. Yes, Joe, I'm really excited to change gears to start thinking in like a more sort of, I don't know, party kind of atmosphere as we head towards the end of the year. Uh, Next Mm -hmm. week, we're looking at you are so, so not invited to my bar mitzvah. You have to say it like that because it's all in capitals. Truly, yes, with an exclamation mark at the end. <laughs> Love it. Uh, so that's where we're heading next. And uh, and then we'll sort of start our, our our slow run to the end of the year. We've got some holiday programming coming up. we got some cheery texts coming up. It's going to be a good time. Well, I mean, there's like a fantasy title mixed in there as well, which is a little bit dark. Oh, yeah. Fair point. Fair point. Okay. Well, you know what? I'm just trying. (laughs) Okay. I appreciate your enthusiasm. (laughs) So, folks, if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on the social medias at HKHSPod, on the hashtag HKHSPod, or for anything long form, like maybe you have something you want to vent about, you can find Mm. us at HKHSPod at gmail.com. Joe, where do they find you? I can be reached at B, still my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A everywhere but Twitter. And Joe, you know what? This episode is coming out just before American Thanksgiving. We have Mm -hmm. lots of listeners in the U.S. So for those who celebrate, I hope that you have exactly the foods you wish to eat and that no one makes a political argument you don't feel like having. Uh, Yes, a hard agree. Um, Okay, so until next time, uh, I will see you on the page. Mm-hmm. And I will see you on the screen. Yeah, I mean, he's just, there's scene. I'm apparently tongue-tied.
Me too. <laughs>